Good morning, Lighthouse family. Psalm 97, I'm super excited about, says, the Lord reigns. Let the earth rejoice. Let the multitudes of isles be glad. Clouds and darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. A fire goes before him and burns up his enemies around about. His lightnings light the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. We're going to sing about the awesome God this morning.
Yeah. 
I love that line, break my heart for what breaks yours. I mean, ultimately, that's what my prayer for us would be, uh, is that the very things that burden God's heart right now would continue to burden our hearts as well, so that the things that we would give our energy towards would be the things that he would want us, his representatives in this world, to give our hearts towards. Okay, so before we dive in, and we are going to be in the book of John today, so if you have your Bible, go ahead and turn to John 2. While you're doing that, I have one announcement. We haven't been doing announcements lately, but there's something I want to announce, and I already screwed it up terribly in the email I sent out to everybody. Um, we, ha we have been slowly crawling into the 21st century here at Lighthouse Community Church. Last year, we started live streaming, which is great because the vast majority of you that's how we are still able to connect right now is through our live stream. So I'm really grateful for those of you who are at home joining us. Uh, love you. Miss seeing your face. Uh, but we have another thing because what we are recognizing is that most people aren't actually interacting with us through their computer. A lot of us now, this is our primary way that we communicate. This is our primary way that we interact is on our cell phone. For better or for worse, we love them, we hate them. Uh, they are our greatest source of noise, but they are also our greatest way of interacting. And so we wanted to provide a way for you to stay connected with Lighthouse via your cell phone. And so for the last four months, we have been slowly developing an app that has all the functionality of our website, all the ways that you can communicate, all of our live streamed messages on that app, if you want to be able to give, if you want to be able to sign up for a life group, if you want to find out about upcoming events, uh, when, when we're able to do men's and women's retreats, if you want to sign up and pay, you can do it all via your app. And so in order to get it, the easiest thing in the world, and this is the part I screwed up, like all of the messaging is correct. I just told you how to do it incorrectly. That's on me. So on your app, you open up one of your, te your text messaging thing and you type L-C-C-C-M, that is Lighthouse Coastal Community Costa Mesa app. That's the part I forgot about is the app at the end. So L-C-C-C-M app to 77977. If you can multitask, you could even do it right now if you're not reading your Bible on your phone, right? So L-C-C-C-M, three C's, app to 77977. It'll give you the link to sign up, whether you're an Android user or an iPhone user. Download that, and then we can stay connected on your phone. That's all I got. With that, let's go ahead and turn into John chapter 2, because over the last month or so, we have been slowly beginning a journey with our rabbi, our Lord Jesus Christ, because our goal in this series of walking through the book of John is to learn from Jesus, to learn how he lived, how he approached things so that we can begin to allow our lives to reflect his life, our values to reflect his values, the thing that breaks his heart to break our hearts. And today we're going to talk about a subject that for some of us is very familiar, and that is the subject of anger. Because for some of us, there are things in this world that make us mad. Now, I know that the vast majority of, of you I'm talking to, you don't ever get angry about anything, so this will be strictly hypothetical for you, but there are people in this world and in our church community like me who actually get mad about stuff, whether it be things outside that are outside of my control 
or even things in my own home that I, I, I want to be able to control but can't control in the way I want to control them, and so I get mad. And so it, whether you, that's you or you just know somebody like this, this will be pertinent to all of us because we're going to be able to, to see how Jesus dealt with something that made him mad and how he responded to it. So John chapter 2, verse 13, let's go. When it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all of them from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Some of your Bible translations might say into a den of thieves. His disciples re remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. The Jews then responded to him, well, what sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all of this? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they replied, well, it's taken 46 years to build the temple. Are you going to raise it in three days? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scriptures and the words that Jesus had spoken. Okay, we're going to address the last couple of verses of this chapter next week because it really flows into the conversation we're going to have then. But let's talk about what just happened. Let's first talk about why Jesus is there in the first place. Jerusalem was central to the worship of the people of God because it was the place where the temple resided. And the temple was viewed as God's throne on earth. It was tantamount to when they were wandering through the wilderness and every time the, the, the cloud, the pillar of cloud by day and fire by night would stop, that being the presence of the Lord, and it would stop over a place, the first thing they would erect was the tabernacle or the tent of meeting. That was the place that was literally at the center of their camp, and all of the other tents would be arrayed around it so that as they were wandering through the wilderness, God's presence was always symbolically right in their midst as he led them. And when they came into the promised land and established it, the temple replaced the tent. It became a permanent structure where they would come to meet with God. And so in many ways, the, te the, the temple and by connection, all of Jerusalem became known as kind of the city of God and the place you would go to connect with God. In a lot of ways, it was the center of the Jewish identity as a people and in the same way that when we think of ourselves as Americans, we might think of Washington, D.C., because that's where the White House is. But the temple and Jerusalem was, was so much more important to them because not only was it the source of their nationalistic identity, the source of political power, but it was also the place they would go to worship God. And on this particular day, it's getting close to the Passover. This is one of the holy feasts where J Jews from all over the world, regardless of where they were scattered, would try to make a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to come and celebrate that moment in Israel's history when God stepped in to their reality 
and kind of forcibly removed them from slavery in Egypt, led them out to the promised land. And they celebrated this year after year at the feast of the Passover. And this is what prompts Jesus to show up in Jerusalem and specifically to walk onto Temple Mount. Now, let's for just a moment, let's go ahead and show you what Temple Mount looks like for those of you who haven't been there. This is what it would have looked like in Jesus' day. You see that big yellow area that's kind of the outside? That is called the Court of the Gentiles. That was as close as a non-Jewish worshiper of God could get to the Holy of Holies, which is the big building in the middle. That is where this whole interaction takes place, in the court of the Gentiles. It's on Temple Mount. It's the closest that many of the worshipers of God can get. And it's here that we run into a bunch of moneylenders and, and people who are selling sheep and cattle and birds. And, and so we read that when Jesus went up to Passover in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. Why were they there? Because when people would come to the temple, they would bring sacrifices to honor God. Maybe you would bring a sacrifice for the birth of your firstborn to kind of dedicate him to the Lord. And there was an animal sacrifice that was involved in that. During the Passover, you would sacrifice a lamb, a pure and spotless lamb, just as God had kind of set up in that first Passover experience. Other things, if there was something that you were carrying heavily where you recognized, I'd sinned against God, and I want to atone for that, you would come and you would bring a pure and spotless uh, cow or something like that to be sacrificed as a part of your worship. And if you weren't very wealthy, you might replace that with a bird instead because that's all you could afford. So this was going on on Temple Mount. But, but here's probably what was going on a little bit deeper, which is why in some of the translations we get Jesus calling them, you know, this a den of thieves. Because it needed to be a pure and spotless animal that they were sacrificing. It was the first fruits, not like your worst fruits. And so when somebody was coming to Jerusalem to connect with God or to worship or to celebrate the Passover, they would either bring the best of their flock to sacrifice at the temple or they would buy the one there. Of course, you would pay a premium for whatever the animals were. And let's say that you got there and you had your animal and you brought it to the priest some theologians think that they had set this thing up to kind of game the system by, by basically being pretty hard on the way they judged whether the animal was acceptable for sacrifice or not. You can always find a flaw in any animal or in any person for that matter. And so no doubt they, they would often find flaws in the animals and say, hey, listen, this one's really not up to snuff, but there's some sanctioned dealers over there in the court of the Gentiles you can go and talk to, and they can give you an upgrade. And so then they would go and they would turn in their animal for a, a better, more kind of appropriate model for a premium. Then they would bring it back and they would sacrifice it. And then probably the next person who showed up needing an animal would buy the very animal you just turned in, but now it's been, you know, sanctified. It's now appropriate to be sacrificed. And in this way, the people who were coming to worship God were being fleeced. And no doubt the people who were running the temple understood what was going on and may have even been getting a cut 
of all of this. This was in their interests as well. And then you have the money lenders or the money changers. Because when people were coming, they would need to, any Jewish male who was 20 years or older would need to pay a half shekel temple tax every year. So the first time you come during the year, you would want to pay your temple tax. But you couldn't pay it in the Roman coinage that was being used all throughout that region. You had to pay it in a temple-approved shekel or half-shekel denomination. So they would have to bring their money and exchange it for the approved coinage to make sure that it was pure, that it was the, the right weight and all that kind of stuff. And of course, the exchange rates were astronomical, again, in the, in the favor of those who were exchanging money. All of these people, the cattle and the sheep sellers, those selling, selling birds, those exchanging money, they all served a purpose as part of the worship in that area, is part of the religious expression as it was being played out in that day. And yet, they were doing so on Temple Mount in a way that really was taking advantage of the worshipers who were coming. And when Jesus walks onto Temple Mount and sees this taking place, he is incensed. So in the temple courts, he found people selling cattle, sheep, and doves, and others sitting at tables exchanging money. So he made a whip out of cords, and he drove all of them from the temple courts, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins and the money changers and overturned their tables. And to those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a market. Stop misusing this place that was intended to worship God. To line your own pockets. You've missed the point altogether. Now, I don't know about you, but when I read this, there's a, there's a part of me that goes, Ooh, Jesus, it seems like you're getting a little mad here. I mean, is that just me or am I? Like, it seems as if Jesus is angry. And not only that, but then we see Jesus act on his anger. And I can't help, but there's a part of me that goes, but I thought it was bad to be mad. I thought it was bad to act on our anger. And so let me just begin this morning by dispelling what a myth that some of us carry into our relationship with God. And that is the idea that simply being angry is sinful. It's not. In fact, in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4, we read this. The Apostle Paul writes this. Maybe. There you go. In your anger, do not sin. If he's saying that in our anger we shouldn't, be, we shouldn't sin, our actions shouldn't be sinful, that means that being angry is not in and of itself sinful. And that's true. Because anger is much like our body's auto, you know, kind of automatic response when we feel pain. You can't control when you feel pain. That's your body simply saying, ah, there's something wrong. And when you feel pain, you don't get upset or you don't feel shameful about yourself. When you feel pain, you stop and you go, what's causing me pain? And then hopefully you do something about it. And in the same way, anger is the body's natural response to when we feel that something out there or something in here is amiss. That something out there that we value is being devalued. Something out there or something in here that we care greatly about is being mistreated. And in that moment, 
Anger is our body's natural response. We shouldn't feel shameful about it. What we should do is pause and say, why am I feeling this way? Now, just because we feel it doesn't necessarily mean, though, that it's always right or righteous, right? There are times when my body's natural response to feel angry is because I have expected something, oftentimes unfairly, of somebody around me, and they haven't fulfilled my expectations, so I find myself getting mad. But that actually says more about me and my expectations than it does about them. So just feeling angry doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. It simply means that we feel that something's amiss. And now before we move on, one of the things that Paul gets into in Ephesians chapter 4, and it's worth leaning into because his verse goes, let's throw the full verse up there for a second. He says this, in your anger, do not sin. Don't let the sun go down on your anger and give the devil a foothold. So he goes into it a little bit of what he means on how we can begin to avoid sinning in our anger. Don't stew on your anger. Don't hold on to it and go to bed angry because if you do, you're going to be giving the devil a foothold. You're going to be allowing it to eat away at you. Like not brushing your teeth at night allows those sugar buggies that we call them at our home um, all over your teeth to begin to eat away at the enamel and so cause pits in your teeth. Don't allow that anger to sit in there unaddressed because it is caustic to your soul. It's caustic to your worldview. It's caustic to the way you interact with other people. So instead, do something about it. Well, what, what should we do about it? How do we not let the sun go down on our anger when there's so many things in this broken world to make us angry? Well, if it's a person that's made you angry, perhaps it's somebody in your house, the most natural response would be to move towards them and have a conversation, right? A redemptive conversation. Not a conversation where you just beat them over the head with all the things that they did wrong, but a conversation where you begin to acknowledge what you have done wrong. I, one of the wisest things a, a buddy of mine said is he's just been working through some marital friction that he had. I, I, he said, you know what? In the past, when I've upset my wife over this particular area, I would try to control her response to me. But I've realized I can't do that. My response is the only one I can control. So I've been spending this time and energy focused on how am I going to change so that I don't keep hurting my family in this way. So respect that perspective. Because we can't control another person's actions. We can't make another person apologize. All we can do is own our stuff. So that's one way that we don't let the sun go down on our anger. Another way we don't let the sun go down on our anger is simply to forgive the other person who's hurt us. I, I love, I, I remember Nelson Mandela's statement that he made when he was walking out of jail after having been imprisoned in South Africa because of apartheid, because of the color of his skin. And after being released from jail, he told people, listen, I've recognized that I have to forgive my captors because to not forgive them would mean that I would remain imprisoned still. The bars that would hold him in wouldn't be steel bars anymore. It would be the bars of his unforgiveness and his anger. And a lot of us remain imprisoned because of our emotions. And they eat at us. 
And then for those things that are well beyond our control, those things that are out there in the world where the person's not around us, where we can't have a conversation. It may not just be a person. It might be circumstances, things that you read about in social media or things that you're seeing on television. And it's stirring you up and it's agitating you and you're making you angry. Just hypothetically, I know most of you aren't experiencing this right now in your life. But imagine that this is happening. When it comes to something like that, just simply taking those things that you have no control over and laying them down in prayer is the best way to deal with that. To literally bring them to the foot of the cross and go, God, I feel out of control. I'm scared. I'm mad. I feel like this isn't right. But I entrust it into your hands because I have no control over this and you do. Would you bring things to light that need to be brought to light? Would you glorify yourself in this and would you bring about your will? Because I recognize that I might not even know what it is you're up to, but I just want to be about your purposes and lay it down and then truly lay it down. Because if we don't, the cost, some of us are experiencing it right now, the cost on our health, the cost on our mental health, depression, anxiety, going through the roof right now, guys. I was talking with one of my neighbors who was very in, kind of involved in the run-up to the political, to the election, and the, in the aftermath and all that, and I talked to him about two weeks ago, and he straight up told me, I feel like I'm about to have a heart attack. I've been carrying the weight of my frustration and my stress so heavily, I feel like I'm about to have a heart attack. And I've, it's this whole season and my frustration and my anger has cost me relationships with people I care about. Family members who have just basically cut me out of communication because they didn't want to talk about it anymore. It truly saddens me that we have gotten so focused on and are spending so much energy on times that, on things that we ultimately can't control that it's actually hurting the very areas that we do have some control over, namely our, our, ourselves and those people in our spheres of influence. And I would just simply say, if you find yourself holding on to anger, bring it to God and let it, lay it down at his feet and let it go, because otherwise it will do more damage to you than it will change things in the world out there. It's a poison that you keep swallowing, expecting for the other person to get sick. It's not going to work. It's caustic to your heart. And so Jesus walks into the temple courts and he begins to clean house. And he begins to yell at the people, get these things out of here. They have no place in there. Jesus didn't just get upset and pray about it. Jesus didn't even take a passive-aggressive approach of seeing this and posting on nextdoorjerusalem.com or something or on his social media page passive-aggressively about how irritated he was like this. He didn't take a picture and like put it out there like, look at these ridiculous people. No, he actually did something about it. So he actually responded to the, what he felt was something that was not right. And so now this gives us some foundation to start having the conversation of how can we discern the difference between righteous anger that we respond to in a way that is righteous, meaning in like according to God's values 
and in a way that is God-honoring. And what are the ways that we mess that up because of our own human nature and make it not righteous, not honoring, and ultimately sin in our anger? And I've been processing this a lot. And there's three things at least that I've identified that distinguish Jesus' response and it being a righteous response to his anger and the ways that at least I find myself responding. And so let's just go through this really quickly. And again, this is mainly for me. I appreciate you guys listening in on this internal conversation I'm having with myself. All right, so response one, number one. The reason why Jesus' response was righteous is because it was God-focused. It was, it was focused on God as opposed to focused on himself. Remember, this is God's home, or the, his father's house. It was a place where people were coming to worship God. And he was upset about the misuse of that place. In fact, his disciples remember this, this scriptural reference that zeal for my father's house consumes me. And they attribute it to Jesus' response that he was zealous for his father's house. But that word that our Bibles translate as zeal is actually the Hebrew word for jealous. I am jealous for my father's house. And jealousy is not always a negative thing. Jealousy is negative when it's misappropriated where we can't even allow somebody that we care about to talk to another person without getting jealous about them. Kind of like my dog Sadie gets jealous for my affection. So anytime I go to pet another dog, she starts growling at the dog. And it's like, hold on, girlfriend. I got plenty of affection to give you. Don't worry, this is a bottomless well of affection for you, baby. But he was jealous for his father's house. I will not allow something that rightfully belongs to my father, namely your worship, this place and the focus on him to be used in a way that is focused elsewhere. He was jealous for his father's house. He was God-focused. Now, if I'm honest, when I get angry, more often than not, it's not because I'm jealous for something that belongs to God. My anger tends to be way more self-focused. I'm more concerned that I haven't gotten what I deserve. I haven't been treated with the respect that I deserve. In fact, I say that way too many times in my house. I feel disrespected right now when my kids are talking over me or not listening or something like that. That's where the majority of my anger wells up from. It's about me. When I get cut off on the street, I get angry because I, I you know, have been inconvenienced. And that's where my anger tends to come from. It's way more self-focused as opposed to God-focused. The second thing, that we recognize that helped make Jesus' response righteous or appropriate is that it was controlled. Now, this might seem odd for me to say when we see Jesus, who's typically mild-mannered, right? He, he acts typically more like Mr. Rogers, who's unflappable, and now all of a sudden he's William Wallace getting a whip, and, 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 and yet he was controlled, Eric? But think about this for a moment. He is trying to get these cattle and these sheep that don't belong in these courts out of there. 
And in that day, the way that somebody would move the cattle is they would use a cord of, and, they would, and they're not like leaving bloody stripes across the back of the, the cattle. It's just what you would use to move them. You would kind of give them a little slap on the haunches and they start moving. It's tantamount to the, the uh, leash that I use to take my dog for a walk. When I pull that thing out, my dog knows it's time to go and she's rearing, right? So him making that cord is intended to move the cattle and the sheep out. Notice he doesn't ever use it on a person. He also doesn't grab the cages of the birds and start throwing them. That would have injured the birds. Instead, the one thing he does is he talks to the, specifically to the, the owners of the birds and says, get these things out of here. So he's not being violent. Oh, but wait a minute, Eric. He scatters the money and upturns the tables. That's violent. In fact, I would suggest that that response was avoiding violence. Because could you imagine if he went up to a business owner who's got all of his livelihood in front of him in, in the form of that coinage, and he starts getting up in his grill and mad-dogging him? That person is, is probably going to try to kind of step up to him, and there could have been punches thrown. But when Jesus scatters the coins and tips the tables over, all of a sudden that money changer's not thinking about confronting Jesus and going toe-to-toe -to -toe with him. He's thinking about gathering up his money so as not to lose a penny of it. And so I would suggest that in everything Jesus did, it was calculated to motivate these people who were in the, the Gentile courts of the temple to get the heck out of there. And then I start thinking about the ways I tend to respond when I feel inconvenienced, or when I feel disrespected, or when I am angry. And it's, I'd like to say it's controlled. Oftentimes it's controlled, but sometimes it's not. Sometimes I get so frustrated, and the, the amount of energy in my emotion is so strong that I, that I lash out in my anger. I start seeing red. And I stop thinking about the ramifications of what I'm doing and I'm more just acting out of my anger. Sometimes I might even hurl a curse word, which breaks my heart because I know it's not beneficial. It's not redemptive or restorative in any way. If anything, it's hurtful to relationship. And this brings us to our third distinction between the way that Jesus responded righteously in the way that we tend to respond, and that is Jesus' response was restorative. What was his point in doing all of this? It was to restore this space that had been set aside as holy for God, the worship of God. It had been consecrated for that, for people to come and connect with God, and he was trying to cleanse it and turn it back to being focused on God rather than being focused on lining the pockets of the people that had some, you know, control over that area. And then I think about the ways that I tend to respond. I'd like to say that most of what I do is, is intending to be restorative. I'd like to change these things, but the way I go about doing it isn't restorative. I wish it was. But when I start getting upset. Maybe, maybe it's because um, 
somebody cuts me off or maybe it's because I'm disrespected or we're, I'm in a conversation and the person's just not agreeing with me in the way that they should and I keep telling them and they're just not hearing it and I start getting more and more frustrated. That emotion starts to percolate and, and, and the frustration might be just irritation that they're not getting it, um, anger that they are dis feel, because I feel disrespected, maybe a little bit of shame or guilt because I see that I, I have a part in this, or maybe I'm just feeling stinking inconvenienced, but for whatever reason, I've got all these emotions that are stewing up, and in that moment, I kind of explode. I, 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 I lose my ability to hold on to all of that, and I just blow flaming hot emotion all over the people around me. Sometimes, we get so frustrated at work that, we, that that pressure builds up, but it's not safe to let it off there, so then we bring it home, and that's when we let it off, and the people who are closest to us get exposed to it. Hypothetically speaking, I'm sorry if that, that got a little too close to home for anybody, but sometimes our emotion of what happens out in the world ends up being released. All that pressure gets released at home, and it's not restorative so much as it's harmful. I've kind of hinted around this, but I think that one of the areas personally in my life where I'm experiencing this the most in this very difficult season we find ourselves in is at home when it comes to my interaction with my kids. Because if I'm honest, I actually go into disciplining my kids with a righteous perspective and a righteous approach. It is 100% focused on building them up because that's what God has entrusted the responsibility to me and their mom to do, is to restore my sons and build them up into God-honoring, respectful men of character, not just the characters that they are, right? We're trying to build them into men. And so I lean into discipline in that moment with a total restorative manner. I'm focused on them. I am controlled as much as I feel frustrated that maybe they've they, they've, they've stepped out of line, they've disrespected one another, they've done something that was dishonest or whatever it happens to be, I'm still controlled in that moment. I'm still focused on them. I'm still looking to restore them. But then I find something that begins to happen that's not so healthy. Maybe as I'm talking to them, they get distracted by something, anything else, hypothetically speaking. Maybe they, rather than repenting immediately, they decide that they're going to talk back and they're going to tell me how, how wrong I am. I just don't get it because I don't understand what it means to be a human being in the 21st century or whatever it happens to be. Maybe they even decide they're going to argue with me. And it's like, what? Excuse me? And in that moment, my patience runs out and I find myself be shifting my focus away from them and onto myself. This isn't right. I'm their dad. They should respect me. And I find that, that the control I had begins to weaken. And I, and I begin to become a little bit more frustrated. And I begin to, to almost play down to their level of, of responses and, and, and getting emotionally lashing out at them in times. And certainly, in moments like that, 
It's not restorative. It's hurtful. Whether it's words that I use or just my posture, the, the, the look on my face, it's not something that's building them up and modeling for them. In those moments when my anger turns inwards and gets focused on me, it's not righteous in any way. And in moments like that, the best thing I can do for my kids, because I love them, is to walk away and put myself in timeout. So parenting is one of those areas in my life that I'm experiencing the distinction between wanting to respond to my anger in a righteous manner and the way that my flesh wants to respond. But it's certainly not the only way that we have been exposed to things that make us angry in the season. I was thinking about some of the things that have triggered us lately. Here's just a couple of them, just in this last year. A virus that shut down our regularly scheduled lives, right? Forced us to let go of things that we would normally do in the ways we would normally do them. Government limitations that have been imposed upon everything from how we can gather to worship. I mean, there's a reason you're watching from home and you're not sitting here with me. I lament that. Um, to where we can shop, where we can eat, how we can do those things, what we have to wear in order to do those things. Racial unrest stemming from videos of, of people of color who have been mistreated and then the responses to that. An election cycle that was more divisive and controversial than any in memory. And that's just kind of, those are just some of the highlights of the last tw 12 months or so. There have been a ton of things that have triggered us and made us upset. And guys, I recognize that not all of us you know, are responding the same way and not all of us see the same problems the same way. We each have our own perspectives. And in any one of those things, there are people in our own church community who have diametrically opposing perspectives on it. And yet, we have been like, we have had things that have triggered our anger over and over and over, and there are many of us who have been carrying that around, and it has been caustic to us. And because I recognize that we don't all necessarily see things the same way, that's the beauty of being a part of a, 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 the family of God, is that although there are a ton of things that might dis distinguish us from one another, the fact that Jesus died for us, the fact that God wants relationship with us, makes all of us who are very different and have very different perspectives one family. And that's a beautiful thing. And so I am not about to stand up here and be arrogant enough to think that I know how you should respond in any of these things. And so I'm not even going to try. Instead, what I want to do is I want to give each of us three questions that can act as a lens for us to begin to look at the ways that we have already been responding to the things that make us mad, as well as when those things come that will trigger us moving forward, and they're going to come, whether it be in our home, our workplace, our school, or out there in the world, here are three questions that we can use to act as a lens to ask ourselves, how now shall I respond? You ready? Here we go. Number one, is your response restorative? Is this something 
that actually is beneficial, that restores back into relationship, or is it something that's caustic to relationship, that rips things apart, that focuses more on distinctions than on pointing people back to Jesus? Question number two, is your response controlled? Are you responding in a way that is God-honoring and is ultimately under control, or are you allowing your emotions and feeling disrespected to cause you to act in a way that you will regret later? When you're mad and you just say whatever's on your mind, that is the very best argument you're going to regret later, right? You're, you might have the most articulate response to just put somebody in their place, but I guarantee you, you're going to be bummed you did it later. One of the best things you can do when you're upset is to write out that email that you want and then hit delete. Don't say it in your anger. Thirdly, is it, and this is by far the most important question we need to ask ourselves, is it God-honoring? Yes, there are things in this world that are going to make you mad. There are things in this world that are going to trigger you. But is your response honoring to God? Come on back to me. If God were sitting next to you, would he approve of the way you are thinking of responding? And if the answer is, eh, I'm not sure, then you probably shouldn't do it. If you have a thought of what you want to write in response on that person's social media post, and you have any check in your spirit, eh, maybe I shouldn't do it, then you probably shouldn't do it. You know, uh, Paul says in Romans 14, which by the way, guys, if you, if you want a, a chapter to do, do a devotion in, go ahead and spend some time in Romans 14. It will convict you like it does me every time I read it. But at the end of Romans 14, he says anyone who questions whether they should do something and they do it, they sin. For us to act out of you know, not being certain that this is what God would want and for us to do it anyway is actually sinful. And there's a whole lot of things that I probably shouldn't do, probably shouldn't say, probably shouldn't respond to. Then I do it anyway. And in that sense, I am sinning, not honoring God, not reflecting his heart, but rather reflecting more my heart. Now, as we talk about this, I cannot help but try to transport Jesus from Temple Mount into Lighthouse Community Church in 2021. And I can't help but ask myself, if Jesus were to walk through those doors and walk into this place right now and he were to walk up here, what would he see? Would he approve of what he sees? Would he approve of the choices that we've made on remaining, you know, doing everything via live stream as opposed to being gathered together would he approve of the ways that we have set up our, our, our worship time where we open with a time of, of singing that prepares our hearts for a message that then prepares our hearts for a response and then we go back out to go be the church? Would he approve of that or would he begin to point out areas where we have misappropriated worship, where we have focused more perhaps on ourselves and our own well-being or our own perpetuation? As, a, as an establishment 
than upon simply worshiping him. Those are things I have to grapple with. But if I get focused on this box, then I think I'm missing the point of what Jesus is actually doing here and the point of why John shares this story here. Because ultimately, this isn't about this box any more than it was about the temple mount, ultimately. Because listen to the second half of this. All we've done so far is we've focused on Jesus entering in, getting upset of all of the cattle and animals and money changers, and getting them out of there. But listen to how the people respond. Verse 18. The Jews responded to him, What sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? I find it very interesting, by the way, that they don't say, Hey, this, what you're doing is wrong. They don't, even, they don't even question that Jesus has a point. What they question is, Jesus, what authority do you have that gives you the right to make this call? It's not like you're part of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. What right do you have to clear this place out? What sign can you show us that shows that you have that authority? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Now, obviously, their mind is going to go, temple? You're talking about the edifice. And they look around at the the, the big stone building that for the last 46 years, King Herod has been rebuilding. The temple had already been destroyed once. And for 46 years at that point, it's been being rebuilt. The reason Herod did it, even though he wasn't a Jew, is because he wanted to put his stamp on Jewish worship. When they went to worship, he wanted them to think of him. This was a way for him to kind of ingrate himself into the people he was leading. For 46 years, this place has been built, and you're going to build it again in three days if it was torn down? But of course, that's not what Jesus is talking about, is it? He goes on. The temple, this is verse 21, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. He was talking about himself. You go back all the way to John 1, where John says, the the word became flesh and it dwelt among us. That word there, dwelt, is actually literally tabernacled. This idea that Jesus was the physical embodiment of of the, the place of worship where God's presence resided. And Jesus is saying, I am the temple. You tear this temple down in three days, I'll raise it back up. And after he was raised from the dead, his disciples recalled what he had said. Then they believed the scripture and the words that Jesus had spoken. Now, the, the reason that John includes this and the reason why this is so crucial to our conversation today is because we have a tendency as human beings to look at the buildings and think that this is the place of worship. And so we need to fight for this. We need to doesn't matter what, what our, our governor says. It doesn't matter what our city council says. It doesn't matter what our neighbors would think if we just defied kind of the restrictions that are placed on us and just said, we're going we're gonna to fill up every seat to overflowing if we need to. Forget about being safe in a time of COVID. We're going to do it anyway. But it's never been about the building. The end of the day, guys, One of the reasons why I can rest at night, even though we're not able to gather like we've been able to pre-COVID, is because at the end of the day, it's never been about this box. It's always been about us. We are the temples of the living God. We are the true church. 
And we get to do that 24-7, regardless of whether we're in this box or not. Listen to the words uh, of 1 Corinthians, if you will. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you've received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. You're not your own. And you're not just a person. You're the temple of the Holy God. The Holy Spirit is in you. And so you and I are living temples. The goal is not to get people to come in and fill these seats so that we can introduce them to Jesus. The goal is to go out and be ambassadors of hope. And so the same question I ask of what would Jesus do if he were to walk into this place and see the way that we are structuring our time and spending our connection time and all that kind of stuff, spending our money that that is given to us through offerings, I have to ask those same questions of myself. If I were to sit down with Jesus, what would he affirm? But also, what would he begin to want to clean out? What are the areas of my life that are not God-honoring, but are more Eric-honoring? What are the areas of my life, of my finances, of the gifts that he's given me, these talents that he's entrusted to me? What are the areas where I am using those to build his kingdom? And he would say, keep going. And what areas am I using those gifts and those talents and those blessings that he's entrusted to me? And I've just railroaded them right back into building up my own little kingdom, making my own name great. And I think that with gentleness, but with firmness, he would say, stop misusing this temple that God has given you to honor him and to reflect his values. Stop misusing it because that's false worship. Stop making yourself, stop deluding yourself into thinking that you are the center of the story. This is his story. Our God is the central character on every single page. And the audacity of the gospel is that he actually allows imperfect people like us to be part of that story. To begin to be his ambassadors, reflecting his values into this world. And guys, we need to do a way better job than we've been doing it. Because quite honestly, we have been spending more energy fighting for our own little kingdoms, fighting for our own tenuous grip on power, fighting for the kind of idols that we think can make us safe, but ultimately detract from, and in fact, even compromise our own witnesses. And we have stopped pointing to Jesus, and we've started pointing people, and even started pointing our own hearts towards things In this planet, created things that can never save us. Things like our bank account, things like our own physical health, things like social media likes and popularity, things like a political party. We have spent so much energy on those things and taken our eyes off of the things that matter the most. And so for us today, 
I would simply invite us to look at ourselves and say, I am a temple of God. Jesus died to cleanse me so that I can reflect his heart into this world so that others can come and worship him. Father God, and these are the words of King David in Psalm 139. This is my prayer for us. Let me just pray it as the worship team comes forward. Father God, I invite you to search me and to know me. Search us and know us. Expose our innermost thoughts. Expose the motivations that drive our actions. And I invite you, God, to show us if there's any errant thing in us that places our worship on something other than you, that misrepresents your heart in this hurting world because we want to radiate the hope that we found in you. We want to radiate the love that you have lavished upon us. We want to radiate your values in a world that champions such divergent values. So help yourself to our lives. Refocus us back onto you so that we can reflect your light much like the moon reflects the light of the sun so that people can walk in the darkness and find their way to you. Jesus, in your holy name, amen. Let's worship together.
As we were singing that last song, where we just begin to kind of go through everything that is us, everything that we think we have control over, itemizing them and saying, God, here I am. <laughs> I couldn't help but think of my youngest son, Grayson, and, and the ways in which in the morning we'll give him a muffin, and then his dad likes to, you know, have, help him pay his tithes. So I go, hey, bud, can I have a bite? And my son is like Schmeagel. He'll be like... No, like my precious. And then he'll, get, he'll take off like the tiniest little bit and give it to me as like, like a placating offering, like we go away now. And I'm thinking, buddy, if you just share with me, know that I've got an entire refrigerator full of food and I am not af afraid to share it. Like, I feel like that's the invitation that we're having with our Father God. So often we look at little bits of our life. Here's an hour and a half on a Sunday morning. You can have that, but leave me the rest of it. Here's, here's, here's some dollars. I'll throw those in, but just let me kind of be in control of everything else. Will you leave me alone? Let me give you a little bit of my time, a little bit of my effort, a little bit of my stuff, but God, the rest is mine. And I feel like he's just saying, hey, I'm the one who's given it all to you. And I am the one who gave it to you to bring me glory. And if you let me have it all, if you will simply peel the fingers of your heart from around the things that you grip onto, you will find freedom in me. It's, I know it's scary because when our hearts do this around stuff, it means that we need them desperately for our own security. And he's saying, would you just trust me with it all? Not because I'm going to take it all, 
but because I'm going to use it all to do immeasurably more than you could ever ask or imagine. So Father God, we entrust ourselves into your hands and we say, here I am. Help yourself to my life. Help yourself to every aspect of my life to do in and through me what you want to do so that you are glorified, so that my neighbors come to know you and call you king, so that your kingdom advances and your will is done in this world just as it is in heaven. Help yourself to us as we now go and be the church. Jesus, in your name, amen. And guys, if there are things you're carrying, one of the things I miss desperately because of this disconnect is I miss being able to pray with you, being able to lay hands on you, and we want to do that. So if there is something you're carrying heavily that we can join you in praying for, please let us know. Jeff and I are available. We will come to you. You can come here, whatever. We want to be able to pray with you. Also, just let us know what you're carrying because there's a team of people who gather every Wednesday morning to pray. Our elders are praying over those requests every time. You can email them to pastor at lighthousecommunity.com. And as I mentioned earlier, we have kind of a new way to be able to, to connect with us with our, our, um, our new app. But you can also now give via mobile as well. And all you do is you text LCCCM to 77977. You can give that way. You can give online at our website or you can give in an envelope, whatever. Guys, I'm just so grateful to be on this journey with you. We love you. Now go be the church. Have a wonderful week. Take my silver